Um, this passage is in John chapter 12, and we're reading about Mary's response to Jesus here. Um, there, uh, so one disclaimer before we jump into the message this morning, and it is this. It says in your bulletin insert that this sermon is called The Response, and I've changed the name of this message, and the name of this message is now The Reaction. And the reason for that is because response and reaction are two very different things. And what started out to me to seem like the response that people had to Jesus, I think upon looking and understanding it further, it's more, this is more a passage that's talking about the way people react. You see, a response is an answer that you write down or that you say to a question or something that's asked of you. Whereas a reaction puts a lot more on the person that's uh, bringing the reaction out in others. Uh, We react to things that other people do. And it seems like oftentimes our reactions are things that we often don't take a lot of responsibility for. I just, that's how I reacted to that person. Now, I know this is an easy example, but it's so incredibly relevant and accurate that you can't not make it. And it is this, there is no better example I can think of than people who evoke reactions than politicians. Uh, those that we have looked to to lead us, um, galvanize us, and we have very strong feelings about them one way or another. We love them or we hate them. They're either the savior of the world or they're the antichrist. Um, I was at the library yesterday and I was in the kids section. I haven't quite made it out of there yet, but um, I was in there, and, uh, and I looked across, and I saw one of the books that they had up on, a, uh, up on the top of the shelf. It's like the featured books, the ones that, you know, you can really see the cover of there, and, uh, and this was the book, uh, and I thought, you know, I'll bet a lot of people see this, and they react, and they go, oh, <laughs> journey to the presidency, yeah, right, you know, whatever, and, uh, and then right next to it was this book, uh, Hillary. And I thought a lot of people probably react to this book. They see it and they go, <laughs> yeah, right. Like I'm going to read this one right to the kiddos. Because uh, you see books like this in children's sections of libraries. And you think like, you know, someone's going to, you know, buy a book on this politician and read it to their child. Like there's some historical figure from our history. Like there's somebody they should know about when in reality, they're the worst person that ever was inflicted upon this nation. Or somebody might look at the same book and say, I can't, I'm so excited. They finally started to write books for my child about this person that I believe in and that I love so much. And as much as it might seem like this is a new thing, this idea that we would look to these people and we would go, uh, we would react so strongly. We're, We're not even able to be completely rational or reasonable about it one way or the other. It's not a new thing. I was reading a book about the development of the Ohio Territory, and in this book, they were talking about Martha Washington, the wife of George Washington. She's an exciting person, and uh, she was known for being very kind and hospitable. Uh, but I was reading in this book about her passionate hatred for Thomas Jefferson, which is the third president of the United States. Uh, I'll give you, read you a quote from this book. It said, um, a guest at Mount Vernon in 1802 wrote that she spoke of the election of Mr. Jefferson, whom she considered as one of the most detestable of mankind, as the greatest misfortune our country had ever experienced. Connecticut Governor John Cotton Smith wrote that next to the loss of her husband, uh, 
Thomas Jefferson's 1801 visit to Mount Vernon was the most painful occurrence of her life. This is good old Martha Washington, right? Oh, Martha, classic Martha, right? And when they talk about why she so passionately despised Thomas Jefferson, they say, historians say, it really honestly just comes down to party politics. They disagreed politically. She didn't like the direction that he wanted to take the country. There's something about people, especially public figures that we look to, people that claim to either lead us to truth and the path of life and what is good for society and people, or those who claim, those who we would say uh, are the opposite. They're, they're, they're those that lead us to the road of sort of peril and death. These people galvanize us, and as a result, when we encounter them, we cannot help but react. Response is a choice. Reaction doesn't seem to be. And this morning, what we see is the way that three people, actually, three kinds of people react to Jesus. The first is Mary. The second is the Pharisees. And we read about them in the passage before this. And it's another reason why I would encourage you, as you can probably tell by now, we're not able to hit on every single thing in John as we go through it. And so if you can, each week, take some time to look at the passage that we're in on your own and actually look at what comes before it and after it, you'll get a much fuller picture of it. Because a lot of times we'll be referring to that stuff like we will this morning. I want to read our passage one more time. Um, It's John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, and um, I'll put it up on the screen, but you'll have to see the books again. There you go. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. There's three people that respond to Jesus and and his ministry and what he does. And the way they respond tells us everything. The first is this, Mary. And her response to Jesus is this, she worships him. Her reaction to him is that she worships him. She cannot help but do it. And what is it about Mary that's so different from other people? It's the fact that she still hasn't gotten used to just what a big deal Jesus is. We're in a house full of people who love him, uh, disciples and people who follow him and believe in the things that he said for the most part, people who get that he's the Messiah and will devote their whole life to following him as his students. And yet, Mary's the one that just worships him. It's not in any way been lost on her who he is and what a big deal it is that he's in her house. It was common when somebody came in your home at this time when people weren't very clean, not as clean as we are today, 
to uh, put a little bit of this perfume or nard on their head or on their forehead when they walked in. It made them smell good. And it was a way of saying, I don't want you to stink up my house. And also, you're worthy of this. I want to give you a touch of something that is very valuable to me. And even the poorest people would make an effort to have this type of ointment in their house as a way of blessing their guests as they came in. It was a great, great honor to host someone in your home. There were so many rules and customs and things that dictated the way you acted and behaved when someone came into your home, how you treated them as your guest, and there was no greater dishonor than to break one of these rules, to, to not indicate to someone that they, are, that they are important and significant while they're in your home eating with you. What she does instead is she cracks this whole thing open and she dumps it all over Jesus' feet wipes his feet with her hair. Now, when I was, I, I have, I am skeptical about some of the most random things in the Bible, it seems. A lot of the things that people have a hard time with, I don't have a hard time with, and a lot of the things I have a hard time with, people are like, why would you get caught up on something like that? And I remember the first time reading this account thinking to myself, that sounds like a fairy tale. That sounds like something that was made up to communicate some lesson or some point I mean, what poor person has a jar of nard in their house that's worth a year's wages? That doesn't sound real at all. That sounds like the beginning of a, of a bedtime story for a child. Uh, and, and I would think, like, this is not at all something that would happen. This isn't even a situation that would be realistic. And so much of what you read about in the Gospels is so realistic with all of the imperfections of people that you see and the different examples of testimony but then as I began to study this passage, I realized, oh, this actually makes tremendous sense because this was a time in which people didn't have bank accounts and they didn't save up all of their money in ways that we do today. And when you wanted to pass on wealth and money to someone, you didn't just give them a bunch of money. Uh, your wealth was tied up in, uh, in the things that you had, the property, the animals, sometimes even the people, and some of the valuable possessions that you had. And it, this, this bottle of perfume, this jar, wasn't just something she had because she spent way too much money on Home Shopping Network one day and was broke for the rest of her life. She had this because it had been given to her. It had been handed down to Mary, most likely. And as a result of it, this thing was her livelihood. This was her disability, her social security, her retirement, her inheritance, her savings. This, that she could sell, that she could get money for and get a lot of money for. And if she was hurt or something else happened in her life, this could get her by. The definition of wealth, if you don't know the definition of wealth, you're like, what? That's the most obvious thing in the world. Definition of wealth is the amount of time that you can go on what you currently have right now. Okay, so you're wealthy if you have enough that you could live on it for a while without earning any more money or anything else like that. And in that sense, Mary was wealthy because she had this jar of nard, this perfume. And so what she does with it makes absolutely no sense. Her worship of Jesus starts with an act that is so irrational and so crazy to us. She breaks open the jar, meaning like, now it's used. She breaks open the jar and she puts it on Jesus' feet. And it tells us something about the way that she worships. There's a couple of things about the way Mary worships Jesus that we walk away with and it gives us a sense of what worship ought to really be like. The first is this. She worships expecting absolutely nothing, but she gives everything. She expects nothing. 
Worship like this expects nothing in return. And it says, I only want to give to you. She gives something knowing that that her trust and her security and her livelihood and her everything is in Jesus. It is not in the things that are saved up. It is not in possessions like this. And so she can do something that no one else can. She can let it go. And what is the best use in Mary's mind of this valuable thing? Judas makes this fake argument because he's a bad guy and it's not a real one, but it's still something somebody would probably think, which is, wouldn't Jesus want her to use that money on something better? And what we see here in this passage is Jesus says, you know, I am worthy of this. What would it be like to actually give and not expect anything in return? This is so nuts to us. This is so crazy, the idea that we would not expect anything out of God, that we would approach God and not ask for anything, expect anything, but long to simply give to him of ourselves and to be fulfilled in that because that's what we see here. We don't just see a woman giving with bitterness. We see a woman giving wholeheartedly, seeming to be fulfilled by her action. Just giving seems to be enough. When Ellie and I started dating, we just, just doing things that made her happy and feel good and feel loved was enough for me. It was, it was enough. The, the more creativity and time and effort I could put in to finding ways to just give to her was so fulfilling to me. And then our relationship went on longer and longer. And now we have sort of more of a bartering system <laughs> in which we trade and swap and keep a little bit of... It's amazing how precise the record that you can keep in your mind is, especially when you have kids of the things that you do for each other, right? And you often think back in the beginning of relationships to when, to when giving, we could just give of ourselves and feel fulfilled by that thing rather than say, well, no, but yes, but in a, in a relationship, in a marriage, and something like that, you know, maybe in a friendship and even a relationship with God. I, I give, but it's because I know that to give is wise because I'll receive something in return. And while giving is better than receiving, giving should lead to receiving, right? Psalm 1 says that... Um, that we are to delight in the word of the Lord. And, and, and the blessed is the man who delights in the word of the Lord. And that, that word delight, it's, it was once described to me, you know, delight isn't just enjoying or reading and seeing some truth and wisdom in something. To really delight in something, they said, was to, to it's, it's, it's close to like what a parent does with a child. That, that sense of really, truly just delighting in in this person, in this thing, expecting nothing out of them, but simply giving to them and delighting in that act and being able to do it. I think that we really want this, but I don't think that we know how to do it. I don't think that we really know how to just give without expecting anything in return to somehow be fulfilled, so fulfilled that we would just empty of ourselves, even the physical things that we have. How do I actually come to God expecting nothing in return but him? How do I come not wanting more of other things in my life? That's a hard thing. Well, it starts out with believing, first and foremost, that God is worthy of these things. Not that we're 
giving because we're so good. It's easy to think of it that way, right? Uh, uh, you know, I'm doing these things, I'm giving these things, I'm letting go of this stuff, I'm worshiping wholeheartedly, emptying myself out because of how great of a person I am, rather than to say, it's just that he is so good that he's worthy of that thing for me. It's the only thing that makes any sense. You see, what Mary does is she pours this thing not on his head, but on his feet. She pours it on his feet, which are the part of the body that you went nowhere near. Because if people were dirty and smelly at this time, the feet were the dirtiest and the smelliest part of people. Servants would wash people's feet at times, but no one anointed feet with oil. You anointed someone's head with oil. And yet she anoints his feet with oil. She, she essentially says, the very best that I have is not even worthy for the very lowliest part of you. The ability to just give of ourselves is rooted first and foremost in recognizing just how good and big and holy God is. The, the glory of, of, of Jesus, the weightiness, meaning the significance of him, recognizing you're so good that all of the best that I have isn't even worthy to really be at your feet. And yet, where do we lay it down? We lay it down at his feet. Mary's worship, it isn't just about emptying herself. It also, the other thing you see in it is that it, it shows complete humility. This real worship is humble worship. It's worship that says, you are more significant than me. Jesus showed us how to do it. Mary does it with him. Now, how do we do that? How do you actually say, I mean, we, we live in a world and in a society in which most people struggle to feel worthless. So the solution is that we are to what? Be more humble as a group of shame-filled people who feel like they need to do so much more to even be valuable or worthwhile to begin with. But do you know when we experience most of the worthlessness that we experience in life? Those, those who struggle with feeling valuable and significant, it's not after some major big failure, after some terrible thing that's happened in life. It's when we wake up in the morning. It's on the most average time, the most average day, when we just think, I need to do something. I need to be something. I need to be loved or known. I need to accomplish. In some, I have to do something to actually matter. If I don't, I will continue to live as I am already living, a person who doesn't really have a lot of value and worth. So how do a bunch of people who struggle to feel worthwhile be humble in the way that Mary is? And the truth is, that it has more to do with the object of the worship than it has to do with the person that's giving. Is it possible that God is great and I am not, and that means that outside of him I am nothing, but that means that inside of him I have value? That if we're created to worship, then that means that the reason why there's so many people walking around feeling worthless is because they are not connected to the source of their worth. You're created to worship something. And when we're not worshiping and being fulfilled by that, then we will wake up in the morning and we will feel worthless. 
because we weren't intended. We were not created to achieve and build and, 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 and do all of the things that we think God needs us to do and he put us here to do. We were created first and foremost to worship. And if we can do that, then we will have worth and value because we're connected to him through it. It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to us. It seems counterintuitive that the more I love and the more I give and the more I lay down and the more humble that I am, the more I can ultimately be fulfilled by that. And yet we see it in Mary. We see it in those that lay things down for Jesus. And so she undoes her hair completely and she wipes his feet with it. Now, if you don't know a lot about the history of this stuff, no, it is not normal to wipe things up with your hair. That's not a thing, okay? They would use a towel, okay? She should have used a towel. In fact, there is nothing, uh, it is very scandalous for a Jewish woman to let her hair down at all in front of other people. Now, when she's in her home, that's a little bit better, but for her to do what she did is to take this wonderful thing and to just now go way too far with it to make everyone feel uncomfortable. And, uh, and, and we probably all know what it's like to watch someone do something like this. You watch someone, maybe it's even worshiping. You watch someone do something and you think that, oh, okay, now it's weird. Okay, it was good. All right, because here's the thing, right? You just spent all your money and you just got down on your knees and you did this thing that took a lot and you humbled yourself. But at the very least, we're all going to respect you because clearly, right, you, you are a person, you know, who's, who's really worshiping, so respect you. But then you went and made it weird. And now, no, now we can't even respect you. Now it's like, well, I'm not sure that you should do what Mary did because, I mean, the hair thing, that's not even really what we're supposed to be doing. But maybe just in the spirit of the way Mary was. Like, Mom, should I be like Mary? Uh, maybe more like a Martha. I don't know. There's, you know... But there's something else about her worship that you see in the very fact that she undoes her hair and wipes his feet with her hair, which is that her worship is, it's, it, it like empties itself, it's humble, but it's also totally unconscious of itself. It's, it's totally not self-conscious. She has like forgotten about herself completely. Could you even imagine how nice it would be to be able to actually forget about yourself for a little bit? Like, with all of the, of, the, of, the, of the need that we have to be constantly worried about like what people will think of us and what people will see of us and how, how we, we should be living and acting and, and the things that we need to be doing for all the people in our lives and, and, and how we, you know, if I'm a Christian, that adds on even more, right? Because I'm supposed to be an example in that way. And yet, the worship you see in Mary is completely unconscious of itself. Real genuine worship totally disregards how people will see us. We just don't care. Our inhibitions, our reservations, the opinions of other people just don't matter. Now this goes both ways because you could, you could, you could worship so dramatically and openly and freely because you know that everyone is watching you, because you know that people will see you. You can be very careful to always do things that are so dramatic and extreme. And yet, it, it's important that Mary does this thing with her hair because it shows us that she's not doing it for the people in the room. She's not doing it to impress them. They probably weren't impressed. They thought it was awkward and a little weird and that she went too far. 
There is nothing like being so enraptured by something that you just forget about yourself for a moment. There was this thing that I always wanted to do at my old church, but it just seemed like a cruel thing to do to people. And I, if I had thought about it, I would have done it like right before I left because that's when you do the really cruel thing, I guess. But it was, we had this thing called Kids Sing, and it was uh, where kids, I, I think I, I kind of named it because I was the announcement guy. It was a really good name because it was where kids come up on the stage and they sing. And uh, we did it around Christmas, and um, it's when all the kids come up and they wear all the nice Christmas dresses and everything. It's a couple Sundays before Christmas, and they sing Christmas songs. Okay. Now, strangely enough, this was one of the more highly attended Sundays of the, of the year. I'm not sure why. There seemed to be a lot more grandparents and relatives and people there. Um, for the kids sing, it was packed. And when the kids came out, they got up on the stage. I was always kind of over closer to the stage and I could see the people in the crowd. Um, and I just am watching as these kids start to sing, people just like melt. They lose any sense of it. I mean, all the moms, a bunch of people get up in front with all the cameras, the phones, everything, like trying to be really nice to each other, but trying to get the other phone out of the way. And people are just like, I mean, you just, I'm watching everyone's faces and they're just like, like they can't even express how, how happy and just, just, oh, I, can't, I can't believe. There's like, there's people just weeping, you know, there's like dads in the back hugging each other. I never knew I could feel this way, you know, about anything or anyone. And, and just, I mean, and I wanted so bad to just, like, take a picture of everyone in that moment. And then, like, two minutes later, when we just went back and did worship, to, like, take a picture of everybody and then just be like, all right, so which picture is, uh, is everybody here worshiping the God of the universe? And which picture is kids sing, right? Uh, and that would be mean. That would be so mean, right? But there are these moments when we just lose all inhibition. We just, we don't care about who's around and what they see and what they think. And we just say, like, we just worship. We say, like, you're so big, God, that I, I can only respond to you this way. And it might even be over the top. And that's exactly what Mary does. When Mary encounters Jesus, her reaction to him is to worship. She doesn't ask for anything or expect anything. You know, if this were uh, like, it seems like if this were any other part of a gospel, it would end with like, and then Mary had two jars of nard, you know, or and then every, Jesus promised Mary that every morning when she woke up, there would be fresh perfume and then she couldn't save it overnight because then it would be bad, but then there'd be more, and on the Sabbath or something, you know. But it would be like, yes, no. If you, if you, if you do what Mary did, then look at how you'll be rewarded, right? Look at how it will. No, but that's not at all what this is about, because her reaction to Jesus was to give, simply give, empty yourself out, to do it with total humility and say, like, you're so good that even the best thing that I have is not worthy of the lowliest part of you, and yet she seems to feel so fulfilled emptying herself out in that way, and to do it in a way that just does not care what the people around her think. This is her reaction to Jesus' worship, but she's not the only person encountering Jesus. In the passage right before this, after Jesus has healed Lazarus, brought him back from the dead, the Pharisees get together and they decide we have to kill Jesus, and we think we're even going to maybe try to kill Lazarus too. 
their plot is to do something very different because uh, just like I was saying about politicians, Jesus is a very galvanizing figure. He said very extreme things. He made big claims. And so the Pharisees, as a result, reacted to him. But their reaction was this. They rebelled. You could even say they retaliated against him. Their reaction against Jesus was to rebel. Why? Why would they rebel? Well, imagine for a moment that Jesus is the liberator, the redeemer who is coming, riding into the place where you are oppressed, saying to you, I have come to set you free. I have come to bring you freedom and life. And through me, you can have that. Your response might be to fall to your knees, thank him and worship him. But what if you don't see him as a liberator? Well, then you would see him as an invader. You would see him as someone riding in saying, I'm here to take control. I'm here to make you live some way you don't want to live. I'm here to describe a reality to you that you simply don't want to acknowledge really exists. You religious people have been spending all of your time making yourselves feel like you're working hard and doing well. And now I'm making you realize that you're no better. You're still not any better than these sinners. How does that make them feel? Jesus felt to them like an invader, someone that they needed to put up their defenses and say, well, then we will rebel against him. We will drive him out. And this is the way that other people react to Jesus. This is another way that we react to Jesus is we encounter him and we go, I don't like this. I'm not okay with this. And so we push him away. We rebel against him. Jesus said that that their way of life and worshiping him needed to change. That those who they thought were the best people weren't the best people. Those who they thought were the worst people weren't the worst people. God loved everyone. He, He showed grace and mercy, which seemed to infuriate these legalistic people. And their response wasn't to worship him, it was to rebel against him to plot his death, to try to kill him, to ultimately kill him. And they did this because they believed that he was dangerous. Because they believed that if people actually listened to what Jesus said, if they actually did what Jesus talked about, that it would be the end of the world as they knew it. And they were right. But then there's a third character here. And this is Judas. Oh, Judas. Judas, Judas. This is Judas's reaction to Jesus. Judas is Judas. Classic Judas. Because what we see here is Judas is this, is this person who has been with Jesus now for quite some time. They've even let him manage the money, which... You know, you got to figure Jesus is just like, I don't, I don't want anybody to have to worry about the money stuff. So if somebody's going to worry about it, let's just let it be Judas because don't worry, guys. Don't worry. You'll see. You'll figure it out. He's, he's not listening much anyway. And, and Judas is like taking money and he's, why is Judas in this at all? He's, he's, he's simply in this for himself, okay? It's something for him to do with his life. It's something that brings him some kind of meaning or significance, but he's also just... It provides for him, obviously. 
He's eating because of this. He's got a place to live somewhere because of this thing. And yet, even though he sees Jesus do all of these amazing, miraculous things, and he sees all these people that are against him and want to kill him, Judas's reaction to Jesus is a total non-reaction. He just stays the same person that he was in the beginning. That's it. I mean, how is it that Jesus is such a galvanizing figure that people can worship him and they can want to rebel against him and kill him, and then you have the ability of this person, Judas, to just do nothing, just hang around him and not react at all? Could you even imagine who could possibly do that? Who could be in close proximity to Jesus for an extended period of time, hearing his words, hearing his teachings, seeing all the things that can happen, even experiencing the community he provides, and just kind of every time you encounter Jesus going, yeah, no, it's good, and I'm going to just stay the way I am today that I was yesterday. Could you even imagine someone being able to do that? I mean, how many of us, when we see these extreme reactions to Jesus' worship and rebellion, do we not think, ah, is there some kind of middle ground? Because I'm not like freaking out worship over here, but I'm also not trying to kill him. Uh, yeah, the middle ground is Judas. It's the guy who's just like, yeah, okay, you know, I'll just keep doing my thing. Judas just stayed the way he was. And it is shockingly too easy for many to just have no reaction to Jesus. And it's not because of who he is or what he said or what he's done. It's just because we have found a way to tune it out. We found a way to tune out the things he says and not let them actually engage with our heart. We found a way to tune out the things he says about the world around us and not feel like it needs to be a threat to anything the way that we live, to, to, to like not disagree with him enough to get mad, but to not actually see him as the truth and life and the light itself. To not believe any of these I am statements he's been saying about himself, but also think, yeah, I could still hang around him. It's a pretty good gig for a while. What we're seeing here, especially in the way that Mary responds, is we're seeing what is sort of a blueprint for worship. And when you say that God creates us to worship, could you even imagine a world in which people actually were not self-absorbed? People actually just gave without expecting anything in return? A, a world in which people were humble, meaning they actually didn't think that they needed to think about themselves all the time and, and worry about themselves. I mean, one of the things that we accept at the earliest points in our lives is that I'm going to care about me and you care about you, right? This whole humility thing's okay, but it only goes so far because in the end, I still need to be about me. This is my life, and I need to be about me, and you can be about you. Maybe I'll be about my family, but that's still kind of an extension of me. What would it be like if you had a world full of people that were not self-conscious, that were humble, and that gave without expecting? That would be the perfect world. The very things that we see produced in Mary when she worships God 
is like a blueprint for the perfect person. And it's not about trying to be the perfect person. It's not about working really hard and saying, I want to be a Mary. It's about the object of the worship being big enough. God is that big. And if we could see it, if we can shake off the dust and decalcify the things that have stuck together over the years for many of us, if we can open up our eyes and our ears and we can actually see anew how big and good and great God is, then we would be driven, we can worship him, And if we can worship him this way, then we don't have to be about ourselves anymore. We don't have to to think about us all the time. This would be like a perfect world. This would be a great world to live in. A world full of people who worship a God. A world full of people that don't walk around feeling worthless who actually feel fulfilled, who don't have to achieve or accomplish anything, who simply can worship their king. That's the world that I want to live in. But as is often the case, the world that we want to live in would be made up of people that we don't want to be. But I don't think there's anything more fulfilling than being the kind of person that Mary was when she encountered Jesus. So as we pray, as we take communion this morning, as we worship, this is going to be a time of fixing our minds, not on ourselves, on what we want and what we need, and, 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 but to take a break from that, for many of us for the first time in a while, and to simply let this be a time that is about how big and how good and how worthy of our worship that God is that it should be enough for us to empty ourselves out to him, expecting nothing in return, that that ought to leave us feeling fulfilled. Let's pray.